Lord Jesus, you said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch you out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We bless you, our Father, that you hold on to us through your Son and through the sealing ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that you will hold us fast, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And thank you that when we understand and embrace this truth, that it changes us to live zealously and holy in this present age. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are identified in Christ. And I pray for everyone, Father, within the sound of my voice that is still identified in their own righteousness, which you said falls far short of the glory of God. Help today to be a turning point in their life, to look to Jesus, to believe that the righteousness he will credit to them by faith can be theirs if they will repent of their sin and trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. We pray, our Holy Father, today that the process that you have begun, you have committed to forming in us until Jesus comes back. We thank you for your word. You said by it our minds are renewed. Thank you that the truth will set us free. You said to sanctify them in the truth, and your word is truth. So we, like the psalmist, we tremble at your word this morning. We recognize that it is your very breath put on the printed pages before us. So help us to pay close attention to it. May the Spirit have total sway in our hearts. I pray today that he would help me, that he would fill me, that he would anoint me and use me. That the Lord Jesus, whom I love more than anyone else, might be glorified. I ask it in his holy name. Amen. Take God's word, Revelation chapter 17. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse to this marvelous revelation. And we've been learning that the Bible teaches that in the end times, right before Jesus comes, the greatest political leader will step to the plate and rule for seven years before his second coming. Revelation 13 and verse 17, we spent four chapters studying this one world ruler in the 13th chapter because he is so important to the providences of God and how God will unfold human history. But that man with great power will have authority, the Bible says, over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. He will rule with a dynamic that is captivating, that is cunning, that is deceptive, that is demonic. And he will be able to consolidate the peoples of this world together. This man will be indeed Satan's man. He will be Satan's ruler. He will come to mimic the true Christ, the Antichrist, who will come in the place of Christ. He will be an anointed one, but not by God Almighty, but by Satan himself. Now, it's very difficult in our day to find political unity. It seems like one day all the politicians agree, and the next day they're all at odds. A few years ago, everyone wanted a wall, including the last president, the Speaker of the House. Everyone wanted a wall. Now today, well, there's some who want a wall and some who don't. I mean, how can you change your mind so fast? People are so fickle 
politically. Now, it is true at times, sometimes Republicans will cross the aisle and vote with Democrats, or Democrats will vote with Republicans, but most often they vote differently. Well, how in the world are all the religions of the world going to come together and all the political entities going to come together through a man known as Antichrist? And that will be the subject of chapters 17 and 18 of a place called Babylon that will have a religious dimension to it and will have an economic dimension. We're going to be camped out in these chapters for a few months. Today we're going to crack the door and just look at two verses and give some foundational truths that will open up these two chapters to you. But I want to begin by reading the first five verses, so follow along in your Bible. Revelation 17, beginning now in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup of gold full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, it would be helpful for us to remember the context, because without a context, you have a pretext, and you can easily miss the meaning of Scripture. So just put in your minds where we are in the Revelation. God gave us a divine outline for this book. In Revelation chapter 4, therefore write the things which you've seen. That's the past. That's recorded for us in Revelation chapter 1 as John has that magnificent vision of the exalted Christ in heaven. Write John the things that are. That's chapters 2 and 3 as he writes of seven churches that are present in his day. And then he says, write the things that will take place after these things. That's the future. So beginning in chapter 4, all the way through the end of chapter 22, you are in the after these things section of the Revelation. It's futuristic. And of course, twice over in chapter 4 and verse 1, he mentions after these things. And of course, the careful reader would say, after what things? After there's a door opened in heaven to let the church in. And so we saw in Revelation 4, 24 elders, and we examined how 24 is a representative number in the Word of God of a mass of people. And these 24 elders represent the body of Christ, the church that are worshiping in heaven. And we see God in the fourth and fifth chapters setting the stage for the judgments. And then beginning in chapter 6, all the way until the second coming in chapter 19, there is these series of 21 judgments that come in the form of seals, trumpets, and bowls. We studied first in chapter 6, the seven-sealed scroll, as this chart reminds us. We saw the first four seals were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then we saw a fifth seal that represents the martyrs. 
people who come to faith in Jesus during the time of the Great Tribulation. If you are here today and you do not know Christ as your Lord, and the rapture were to take place, if that door were to be opened today, it will be too late for you. You will not be a part of those who come to faith and who are martyred. You'll be a part of those who will go against God's people in that day. People who prior to the rapture heard the scripture in clarity and power will have no opportunity whatsoever to call upon Jesus in faith. But the millions from every tongue, tribe, and nation will hear. Jesus said it will be during this time the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. What we've been trying to do for 2,000 years is going to be fulfilled in this final seven-year segment of history. And so millions are going to be martyred because they followed Jesus as Lord. And then in the sixth seal, we saw some cosmic changes. And all the way through the Revelation, there are these events that take place in the sky. And then before the seventh seal, there's an interlude. That's Revelation chapter 7. There's 144,000 Jewish men who are saved. They become God's preachers, God's men who preach the gospel to the whole world. 144,000 Jews. Why? Because the Bible does not teach supersessionism. I can't even say it this morning. God does not teach replacement theology. God's word is clear that he is not done with Israel. Augustine was wrong. Origen was wrong. Calvin was wrong. Luther was wrong. They were right on a lot of things. But they were wrong on God's people, Israel. God has a future for the Jewish people. God is setting the stage in our day for Jesus to come back through the Jewish people. And during this seven-year period, 144,000 mighty men of God will be preaching the gospel to the whole world. And millions will be saved. And then the seventh trumpet, the seventh seal is opened. And in it are contained seven trumpets. Here's the relationship here in this next chart between the sealed trumpet and bold judgments. There are seven seals. You're ahead one slide. Seven seals. In the seventh seal, maybe it's not there, I'm sorry. Uh, In the seventh seal are seven trumpets. In the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls. Now, understanding the architecture of the Revelation is critical to your understanding how this book unfolds. God gave us a divine outline The things that are the past, chapter 1, the things that are, 2 to 3, the things that will be, 4 through the end of the book. And in the will be section, beginning in 6 through 19, you have this series of judgments. There's 7, 7, and 7. In the seventh seal are contained seven trumpets. In the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls of wrath. So here's the seven trumpet judgments of the Revelation. And once again, between the 6th and 7th trumpet, just like between the 6th and 7th seal, there's an interlude. Not in the action, but an interlude in the narrative so that we can see what God has been doing as the seal judgments were unfolding. And now in chapters 10 through 14, God gives us again a peek of what he is doing as these trumpets are being blown. And so if you remember in chapter 10, we met the angel with his little book. And then in chapter 11, we saw two witnesses who, in addition to the 144,000, are preaching the gospel, and God is using a number of signs, wonders, and miracles through them. 
they mimic the ministries of both Moses and Elijah. And then the seventh trumpet is blown in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And there it's announced, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And you think the book should end there, and here comes Jesus. But it doesn't. He continues in this interlude. And we're going to see the effects of the seventh trumpet when we come to the bold judgments. And so if you remember, in 10 through 14, he is once again reviewing some things that have been happening during the trumpet, but he is also previewing some critical personalities that we're going to need to know about for the rest of the book, along with some critical events that are yet to take place. And then the seventh trumpet, when you come to the 15th chapter, you can see on this chart, it's not part of the interlude. It's not part of the interlude. Uh, when you come between the 6th and 7th trumpet. Chapters 10 through 14 are. Why is not chapter 15? Because chapter 15 is part of the introduction to chapter 16, where the bowl judgments are poured out on the earth. I suppose if I were making the chapter and verse divisions that come a thousand years after the Bible is complete, I'd put 15 and 16 together. But in 15, we're introduced to seven angels who have seven bowls of wrath. But again, the structure is the same between 6 and 7. Now the bold judgments. There's another interlude in the narrative. And so as this chart shows in Revelation 16, 13 through 16, God gives an interlude in the, in the narrative almost to let us catch our breath. But again, he's unfolding for us some critical things that have been happening and something that is going to happen. Now there's an intensity in which these judgments come across the planet. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse likened them to a woman in labor. Labor pains increase in frequency and in intensity. And so in the sealed judgments, they affected one quarter of the earth. When you came to the trumpet judgments, they influenced one third of the earth. But when you come to the bold judgments, they affect the entire planet. So here they are together this final chart, just for your preview here. The next event is the rapture. It could happen today. Nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled since the day of Pentecost for the catching of the church to take place. The second coming is a prophecy-driven event. All kinds of things have to happen, like the one world leader in his one world religion and one world government that we're going to be studying in the 17th and 18th chapters. Those are things that have never happened. They're going to happen. And of course, when you see events in our day fulfilling prophecy for the second coming, you know the rapture is that much closer. So the rapture happens. There's a space of time. Maybe it's hours. Maybe it's days. Maybe a few weeks. But it's very quickly, as the opening verse of the Revelation tells us. Very quickly. Then this world leader comes on the scene. And he signs a peace treaty, so to speak, with the people of Israel. He's some kind of an agreement with Israel. And it starts the clock for a seven-year period. That seven-year period is divided into two halves. It's described as three and a half years, time, times, and half a times, 42 months, 1,260 days, two even periods. 
In the first half of the tribulation period, the seal judgments are unfolding. Right in the middle of the tribulation, there is an event that takes place that the prophet Daniel wrote about that Jesus references in Matthew 24 called the abomination of desolation. And the Antichrist will walk into a rebuilt temple up there in the Temple Mount. Some of you have been with me to Israel. You've seen the actual architectural plans for the next temple there in the Temple Institute. You've seen all the priestly garments that have been remade. You've seen all the furniture that have been reconstructed. There are Jewish men who identify themselves as Levites who are out in the fields outside of Jerusalem who are actually practicing the sacrificial system. The only thing they lack is the temple. But God is going to rebuild that temple. It will be up and running by the middle of this tribulation. I suspect it will not start until the church is raptured. The Antichrist will go in. He will claim to be God. He'll commit a horrendous act of idolatry with a statue. And then wrath like the world has never seen will begin to unfold, culminating in the seventh bowl that a short time later brings the second coming of Christ to the earth. Now let's zoom in on chapter 17 where we are today. I'm sure the apostle John was awed as God allowed him to see in this vision these bloody waters, both fresh in the oceans of the world, these loathsome sores, these intense uh, expressions of the sun's heat that cause blisters all over the body, the blinding darkness where you could see nothing, and a global earthquake. And then he caps it all off with 100-pound hailstones that come out of heaven. And then God pulls him aside, chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now we learn here that one of the seven angels, we were introduced to them in chapter 15. Seven angels each have a bowl judgment. And one of the seven angels pulls John aside and he introduces him to this one called the great harlot. She's titled in verse 5, the mother of harlots. She's known as Mystery Babylon. Babylon is very, very important in the Word of God. And so in Revelation 17 and 18, he's going to show us two expressions of this place called Babylon. There's Mystery Babylon, which is a religious entity that will express itself during this time frame. And then there's Political Babylon. And the Antichrist is going to use the religious systems that are going to unite to pull together these political systems. And so there's this religious city, and we're going to read in the 17th chapter over the next several weeks why God hates it. And then this economic system in the 18th chapter that likewise is headed for destruction. And by the way, Babylon, the subject Babylon... As a major portion of the book of Revelation, there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 44 of them are in reference to Babylon. That's 11% of the book. So for God to commit 11% of the book to this one system called Babylon, you know it's got to be pretty important to him. In fact, there are two cities mentioned more in the Bible than any other cities. One is Jerusalem and the other is Babylon. 
The first time Jerusalem appears is in Genesis chapter 14. The last time it appears is in Genesis, I mean in Revelation chapter 21. It's mentioned over 800 times in the Old and in the New Testament. And Jerusalem is a unique city in the plan and purposes of God. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 132. For the Lord, for Yahweh has chosen Zion. And if you know that Zion is one of the titles, one of the names that God gives for the city of Jerusalem. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. In fact, Jerusalem is the only city in all the Bible that you're commanded to pray for. Psalm 122, 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they who do... May, may they prosper who love you. I know we have these politicians that hate Israel today, and they hate Jerusalem, but God loves Jerusalem. And if you're against Jerusalem, you're against Israel, and if you're against Israel, you are coming under what God warned in Genesis chapter 12. Those who bless Abraham, I will bless. Those who curse Abraham, I will curse. When you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you are praying for the Messiah to return because there will only be peace in Jerusalem when Jesus comes back. But Jerusalem is special in God's sight. In 2 Chronicles 6, he said, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. The psalmist said in Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. And that's why Psalm 87.3 refers to Jerusalem as the city of God. Nehemiah, Isaiah, and Matthew all call it the holy city because Jerusalem is by the holy city, the capital of Israel. By extension, we often refer to Israel as the holy land. And it is a holy city. It's the place where Jesus ministered in the temple. It was the place there on Mount Moriah where he was crucified. It was the place where he was raised from the dead. Jerusalem is the city in which Jesus ascended physically, bodily into heaven. And it is the same place that he will return to at his second coming. In Ezekiel chapter 5, when God looks down on the planet, we read, Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. When God looks out on planet Earth, he doesn't see the United States of America as we'd have on those flat relief maps years ago growing up in school as the center of the world. He sees Jerusalem as the center of the nations of this world. Jerusalem is the apple of his eye. And someday when God makes a new heaven and a new earth, this planet that we're sitting on this morning is going to be totally destroyed. God will make a new heavens and a new earth. And the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will literally come down as we're going to study. And it's going to become the capital city of this new heaven and the new earth. Now, I know Jerusalem, Yerushalem. Yera means foundation or vision, shalom, shalom, means peace. And so when we speak of Jerusalem, we're speaking of the foundation of peace. It doesn't seem like a very peaceful place. It's been attacked over 40 times, totally decimated 18 times. But in God's mind, it is the place of peace because it was there that his only son shed his innocent blood so that you could have peace with God. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. 
Now, you may be here this morning, and in your heart, you don't know the peace of God. That's not what Paul is speaking of. He's speaking about peace through God. In the 10th verse of this same chapter, he says, before you are born again, you are an enemy of God. The scripture says once we've reached that age of accountability, we are by nature children of wrath. And so you don't have peace with God if you don't know Christ, if you are not a member of his kingdom, and you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. To the Colossians, Paul wrote these words. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. There is no more important city on the face of the earth than Jerusalem. Not Washington, not Rome, not Moscow, not Paris, not Tokyo. No city more important than Jerusalem. It is the city of God, but there's coming a city known as Babylon, a real physical locale that we're going to study, and God isolates for us where it is located, and it is not the city of God, it is the city of man. And let me say parenthetically that Babylon is the second most prominently featured city in all the Bible. It's mentioned over 300 times. The first time you read of Babylon is in Genesis chapter 10. The last time is when you come to Revelation chapter 18. The city of Jerusalem represents the plans and purposes of God. The city of coming Babylon represents the plans and purposes of man. And so today is a foundational sermon. We're going to study the place called Babylon, its significance, its typology, and it will lay the foundation for the next couple of months as we work through chapters 17 and 18. So to help us this morning, hold your finger here and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 10. You need to go there, Genesis chapter 10. Our English Bibles take the first five books of the Bible and we title them from the Greek terms that are found in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. Of course, the Jews, they read Hebrew. And so the five titles of the first five books in their Bible are different from ours. Same Bible, same books, different titles. They don't call it genosius in Greek, which means beginnings. They call it barashit. And they take the first five titles from the first five books from the first verses in each of those five books. So the very first word in the Bible is Bereshit. It means in the beginning. And critical to understanding the whole of the scripture is to understand Genesis and Acts. Genesis gives us in kernel form all of the great doctrines in the word of God. God in kernel form reveals all of his plans for mankind. And so if you can understand the book of Genesis, it will open up the whole of Scripture to you. Someone called on the Bible line from Maine the other day, and they said, well, we're trying to study the Word of God as a family, and what books should we learn? I said, you should learn Genesis, you should learn Acts, and you should learn Romans. If you can get those three books under your belt with your family, and they're all online at searchthescriptures.org, that will really open the Word of God to you. Now, it's interesting, in Genesis chapter 10, you have the table of the nations. And there's a writing style that you see often employed, not just by Moses, but other writers in the Old Testament. 
where they'll describe an event, and then they'll go back and they'll tell you how that event came to take place. And so, for instance, in Genesis 10, you have all these languages, all these nations of the world. And if you know anything about Genesis chapter 10, it is a critical chapter in the Bible. But when you come to Genesis 11, then he's going to explain to you how the events of Genesis 10 took place. Now, if you remember in chapter 9 in verse 1, Noah comes off the ark and God commands him and his family, be fruitful and multiply. And while I'm mentioning that, let me just say I know global warming is a huge issue in our day. And if you were not here last week, in the message before that, we discussed it in detail. But God promises that there's not going to be some global meltdown on the planet. We're not going to be overrun by water. You're not going to drown in your backyard with ocean lakes. I promise you that will not happen. You say, on what authority? On the authority of the Word of God. God said in Genesis 8:22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. As long as man is here on planet earth, until Jesus comes back and ultimately creates a new heaven and a new earth, the normal cycles of seed time and harvest will take place, period. And in spite of the doomsayers, and in spite of the indoctrination that is going on with our young children in the government school system across America, most parents don't have any idea what their kids are being taught. There is a system of doctrine that is undermining the authority of God's Word. God is the Creator to get people to worship Mother Nature instead of Father God. But God is clear, summer and winter, day and night will continue, period. We're not going to lose that. Now, with that said, it doesn't dismiss us of being responsible stewards of the creation. But that should not be your focus as a believer. Your focus should be on preaching the gospel. Now, in chapter 9, the decree that came from God to Noah was to be fruitful and multiply. And when you come into chapter 10, you discover that the great-grandson of Noah, the world's first tyrant, is introduced. And his name, of course, is Nimrod. And I hope you have Genesis 10 there open in front of you. We refer to it as the table of the nations. And I suppose that if I had one chapter in all the Bible, if I were uh, on some desert island, I would not choose Genesis chapter 10. But with that said, it is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, and I keep coming back to Genesis 10 for over three decades of preaching the Word of God. It's a critical chapter. Noah comes off the ark with his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There are three wives, eight persons in all. And of course, uh, they start having children and the world begins to populate. We're told in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 8, notice, now Cush became the father of Nimrod. Having listed Cush's sons, God now introduces us through Moses to this shadowy man by the name of Nimrod. And, of course, the word Nimrod literally means to rebel. Look again at verse 8. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. That is to say, he, he became a hero. He became a celebrity of sorts. Verse 9. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
dropped right in the middle of this chapter is this rebel of a man by the name of Nimrod who builds this, who builds this place called Babel, also called Babylon in some of your English Bibles, depending how they render the Hebrew. And this man, Nimrod, becomes the founder of the very first tyrannical one-world government that is glued together through a one-world religion. Now understand, God by typology all the way through Genesis pictures events that are going to take place in the future. And so, for instance, you remember Abraham up there on top of Mount Moriah, and he has his uniquely begotten son, his monogenes son. There's only two people in all the Bible who are called the only begotten, and that is Abraham's son Isaac and the Lord Jesus. Now, they're totally only begotten, monogenes, uniquely different in incredibly different ways. But Isaac is a miracle baby. When you are 90 years old as a woman and your husband's 100, it is physically impossible even in Abraham's age span to have a baby. Their bodies were as good as dead. But God gave a miracle baby, and this baby Isaac is a type, a picture of the Lord Jesus. Well, just as Abraham takes his uniquely begotten son and he attempts to offer him an obedience to God up there on top of Mount Moriah, and he is a type, the New Testament says, a picture of the Lord Jesus, which is why Jesus could say, Abraham saw my day and believed. He understood its significance and what it represented. Even so, this man Nimrod, this first world king with a world empire, is a type, he's an illustration of this coming place called Mystery Babylon. And so it's not by accident that the names are identical. Now there are four centers to this kingdom, verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel in Erech, and Akkad and Cana in the land of Shinar. Now the word Babel, again translated in some of your English texts in the NIV, HCSB, NCV as Babylon. It's the shortened form of the word Babylon, Babel. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Bible, this word that appears over 200 times in every single instance is translated Babylon, the same word that's used in the New Testament and the two chapters that we're studying here in the Revelation. Now, God reveals in Genesis 11 that this root event that dispersed all the nations started with the building of a tower called the Tower of Babel. And this project took place under this man, Nimrod. And so this is the first, quote-unquote, United Nations organization in the world. And just as there was this great world leader who pictures a rebellious spirit that is able to grab the peoples of the world under a commitment to sin against God, there's coming another world leader. He is called Antichrist, and he likewise, in the capital of his rule called Babylon, and we'll identify that city for you before we're done with uh, these two chapters, so you need to come back. <laughs> uh, he likewise is going to have a one-world government and a one-world religion. Now look at 11 and verse 1. We're told, now the whole earth used the same language and the same worlds. Moses begins by simply telling us there was a time when there was one language and one vocabulary. No dictionaries needed. No dialects. My Hebrew Bible, as I read it this week, it said they had one lip and one set of words. Very illustrative of what is going on here. 
One vocabulary, one world. And you would think that through this one word, one lip kind of language, that the peoples of the world could come together for good. But they don't. They come together for evil. Now, how different is the world today? There are 6,500-some languages across the planet. Added to that a number of dialects and small nuances within those 6,500 languages. And sometimes as Christians, we think, well, you know, if there was just like one language, it would make it so easy to go and to preach the gospel. And we could accomplish so much more for the cause of the Lord. Actually, God knows that it's a blessing that there are a multiplicity of languages across the world because man, when he unites, he typically unites under the banner not of good but of evil. And because they were sinful, rebellious, proud, and wicked people, they come together under one lip and they rebel against God Almighty. It says in verse 2, it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now remember, after the flood, God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But people don't want to fill the earth. They want to come together. They want to live in one place. And they're clustering in this place called the land of Shinar. If you were with me in my study of the prophet Daniel, that phrase is used in Daniel 1 and verse 2. Daniel is carried away to the land of Shinar. It was Babylon. It was the place where Nebuchadnezzar ruled. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, in many ways, is a picture, once again, of what Nimrod was like, of having this civilization that tries to unite the people together under a single religious cause. And so these people say, we're not going to obey God. We're not going to spread out across the planet as he commanded. We're going to congregate in this one place. Now, we just noted from Genesis chapter 10 that Nimrod is called a mighty hunter. It's not used, as you read the chapter, in other scripture in the same way that we describe someone who's a mighty hunter. And by the way, God's not against hunting. It's okay to kill and to eat. You say, I'm against hunting. Well, did you have a good steak? Someone hunted that cow. They slit his throat, whatever they did. God's not against hunting. We don't worship the creatures. Now, we're not cruel to them. A wicked man is cruel to his beast. But God gave us food to eat. But when the scripture describes Nimrod as a mighty hunter, he is a hunter of men. He is a Hitler of sorts. He's a Stalin of sorts. And he uses his hunting, his violence against men to consolidate people here in this Euphrates Valley. We're told in verse 3, they said to one another, come let us. Circle that word, let us, all right, in your Bible, verse 3. Come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use brick for stone, and they use tar for mortar. They said, come let us, circle that second let us, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us, circle it again, let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The defiance, the rebellion of these people is summarized in these two little English words in our text, let us. 
Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Now, I think it's fitting that God would have Moses, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, record the materials that they used. Because if you remember, a brick is nothing more than hardened clay. And it is a picture of a coming kingdom. Do you remember as we studied Daniel, bring up the whole chart, if you will, there is this statue that Nebuchadnezzar has his dream of, and he's all bent out of shape. No one in the kingdom can understand what it means. And, of course, Daniel steps up to the place, and by the Spirit of God, he says, well, the, the golden head stands for Babylon. That's you, king. And then the, uh, the breastplate, that stands for a people known as Medo-Persia. And, and then he describes the skirt that pictures Greece. And then Rome that has two legs to the empire. And then finally at the bottom are these feet that speak of a future empire in Daniel's vision. That they were all future, of course, other than Nebuchadnezzar's head. But one that he describes will take place at the end of time. And if you remember, the feet are partly made out of clay. And that is in deference to God's mighty stone, the rock, as it's described in Daniel, that is a picture of the Messiah that will destroy this ten-toed kingdom. We're going to study this ten-toed kingdom here in chapters 17 and 18. There is going to be a revived Roman Empire where ten nations are going to come together. And so God will ultimately destroy. But here are these people, and they build out of hardened clay this tower, and it's an appropriate substance because it not only pictures what the end of time will be like, but it really is a picture of just the fallenness of humanity. Clay and slime mixed together to build this vile tile of Babel. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use brick for stone, and they use tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves, notice, a city, a tower, and let us make for ourselves a name. You should circle those, a city, a tower, and a name. There's a three-stage plan to this tower. There's a city, there's a tower, and there's a name. There's a social goal, let us build a city. God commanded them to spread out across the earth. No, we want to congregate in this one place. They want to live in close proximity to one another. Second, let us build a tower. And I'll show you in a moment, that's not a social goal, that's a religious goal. This is a religious tower. And third, God records, they say, let us build a name for ourselves. That's an ego-driven goal of sorts. So there's a social, there's a spiritual, there's a psychological goal that is unfolding for us. And this is not for the glory of God, but for the glory of men. The same kind of attitude that another Babylon led by Nebuchadnezzar would express. Nebuchadnezzar said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself was built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Yes, it is. Well, there's a coming Babylon led similarly to Nimrod by a coming world leader who will also build a city for his own glory and honor in which to rule the whole world. 
Now, sometimes these people are painted as ignorant. Oh, they have this tower, and they think somehow if they just build it high enough, and if they weren't hindered by God, and if he didn't start the construction, that somehow they thought they could build it all the way to the throne room of God. And these liberal theologians who love to attack the Bible and say that it's rooted in myth and fairy tales make such statements. Actually, if you look on the New American Standard, you see those two words, will reach? They are italicized. What does that tell you? It tells you they are not a part of the original. Unlike in modern English, where we add italics in order for emphasis since the 15th century, in our English Bibles, we add italics to supply words that are not in the original text. And sometimes when you come from an original language to a receptor language, it doesn't make sense and it doesn't make good grammatical sense unless you add some words to fill them in. Sometimes the words are directly implied in Scripture. Sometimes they are necessary to make a complete sentence. So the words will reach are not there. The Hebrew text reads, whose top into heaven. In other words, the top of this tower was dedicated to the universe. Why? Because they are worshiping the heavens. The God of creation has been denied. And Nimrod, this mighty hunter of men, has got the people to come together in this religious cause to worship the heavens. Now, this is important. It's interesting. If you go even to modern-day Iran, you discover and in Iraq, they have covered in both countries these ancient statues of Nimrod because he was a, a mighty hero in their eyes. They have even uncovered little ziggurats. You've seen them, these towers with a circle. And at the top of the tower is the zodiac. And the zodiac, of course, was... Um, an expression of worshiping the heavens. They divided it into 12 parts. Some people read the horoscope, which is an evil thing to do. You should never do it if you name the name of Christ. That's astrology. God speaks heavily against it in the Word of God. But here are these people, and they create this tower that's dedicated to the heavens. Why? Because they are worshiping the heavens. They are worshiping a false god in the place of the one true God. Now, notice how God puts them in place when you drop down here to verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. God, through Moses, kind of mocks the tower by saying that God had to come down to see as if, it, as if he were unaware what this tower looked like. This tower could be seen because God, of course, is omnipresent and omniscient. But he wants to emphasize the hilarious nature of their project as they build this tower dedicated to the heavens. Now, notice the conversation that ensues within the Holy Trinity. The Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Mankind had gotten basically too big for his britches. And God says that they've not scattered as I've commanded them to do. They're not worshiping me. They're worshiping the creation rather than the creator God. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. They're all agreed. They're all within one accord. And there's nothing to check their wicked, evil behavior. 
And so God is going to step in. Look at verse 7. It begins, come let us. Not let me, but let us. Because there is one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. In the opening verse, Barashit bara Elohim, in the beginning created God, plural. Singular verb, plural noun. Why? Because while grammatically it makes no sense, even in Hebrew, it makes perfect sense because of who God is. He is one God who exists in three persons. Let us make man in our image. Now let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Here are these proud people. They think they have it all together. They have plotted the heavens. They have made their zodiac, so to speak. And in the process, they have forgotten God. They are praising themselves instead of the God who made them. So one man says to another, hey, hand me a brick. What do you say? What do you say? What are you, being a smart guy? And they can't understand one another. The, the architects can't get together on the same page anymore. This is how chapter 10 unfolded. God confused their languages. So what happened? You hung with people you could understand. You married someone you could understand. Now the evolutionists say that the races represent the evolutionary process. Nothing could be further from the truth. And of course Hitler, who is largely influenced through Darwinian evolutionism, said that black people, Jewish people, they were all deficient races in the evolutionary process. God says we are all related, we are all from one blood, we no doubt all looked very similar at one point, but then when the languages came and you intermarry within a particular racial group long enough, then you begin to take on those features and those characteristics. I can look at a person and say, that person's Ukrainian. I can look at a person and say, that person's Russian because of distinct facial features that they have had marrying within each group. And so that is the explanation that God gives, unlike evolution that has a foolish, wicked way of looking at man, God gives a reason why we have all the races. So we're told here in verse 8, so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the building. As you went to your particular enclave in which you lived and your little family and you found them there, you had, you had to pull away so that you could function together. Now, whether God physically also helped them is debatable. I think it might be suggested in Genesis 10 as I unfold in that sermon. If you look at the continents today, it looks like they would fit together as a big puzzle. And there appears through one verse in Genesis that God could have broken up the continents at that time and even helped them spread across the earth. In either case, the Bible says the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth. Now look at the summary, summary statement in verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel. And the word Babel in most languages, English included, just means confusion. The name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Listen, it is not by accident that the final one world government under a one world leader is called in the Bible Babylon. 
Now, the word Babel or Babylon, either one, either the shortened version or the full word, occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament. And it is almost always translated in our English Bible as Babylon. But some of you have in your Bible here not the Tower of Babel, but the Tower of Babylon, depending on the English translation you are using. But it's the same place. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. It's a put-down of the great city Babylon in this future place known as Babylon. So go now back to the book of Revelation chapter 17. That's very important because what we just covered is a type, it is a picture of what we're going to study in chapters 17 and 18. And by the time we've had six, seven, eight messages, I'm not sure how many, in these two chapters, you will see how significant Genesis 10 and 11 is to what we're going to study in these two chapters. Now, let me kind of give you an overview of the 17th chapter. In the first six verses, John begins by describing the harlot and the beast. Uh, Then, beginning in the end of verse 6 through the 14th verse, uh, he interprets for us the significance of the symbolism that he uses. And then in verses 15 through 18, he describes the judgment of this great harlot. So let's begin by thinking about the harlot and the beast, specifically religious Babylon. If you're taking notes, you're wondering when I'm going to get to it. I'm actually almost done. We're going to begin with the scope of Babylon, the scope of religious Babylon. I want you to think about the scope of this coming world religion. We're told in verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, again, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They are there to help us to find our way around in the Bible. If you remember, at the end of 16, in verses 17 through 21, we saw the final seven bowls of judgment that come upon the earth. And in that final bowl, there's this great earthquake that demolishes the cities of the world. And then if you remember, he highlights out of all the cities of the world one particular city. Look at Revelation 16 and verse 19. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Babylon the Great, that's the subject of these two chapters. So one of the angels, one of the seven angels who had One of the seven bulls, he came up and he says, Come here, John. I want to show you the judgment of this great city called Babylon. Now, it would be conjecture for me to say which of these seven angels John is referencing. But if I were to make an educated guess, it's probably the last one who announces the judgment on Babylon. But what I want you to see is we work through these two chapters is that Babylon, while it represents a religious entity, or it represents a political entity, by the end of chapter 16, it is clear it represents a real place, a real place that experiences a real earthquake. And God allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, He's going to identify for us where is this real place known as Babylon the Great. Now look at uh, back, if you will, at chapter 14 and verse 8. There's not a slide for this, I don't think. And back in 14 and verse 8, God had 
uh, used a description that is very similar to what we're reading here this morning. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, same place. She who has made the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And so here, again, we see the same expression of truth. God describes this religious institution as committing a form of spiritual immorality. Now, the word is porneia. We get our word pornography from it. And the word porneia and the word adultery can be used in different ways. Sometimes the word adultery can be used in a broad sense to refer to any kind of illicit sexual expression outside of marriage. It can refer to premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual sex, any kind of wickedness. Very often in Scripture, it is used to describe a violation of the relationship that God made between a husband and a wife. Poinea, often translated fornication, is very often used to describe sex before marriage. And so they said to Jesus, we weren't born of porneia. We weren't born of fornication. That's why you're here. You're here because of an illicit relationship Mary had. That's why you're very defined usage of the term. Well, interestingly, think your way through this. When God describes his people, Israel, he often uses the word adultery because why? God is married to Israel. God calls Israel his bride. And in the New Testament, God calls the church his bride. And so God typically uses the word adultery to describe a believer, either a Jew or a Christian, who is unfaithful to the Lord God. But these are not God's people. These are people who are following after the false leader. And so he uses a word that would describe porneia. And again, you see this all the way through Scripture. For instance, in Jeremiah 3. God addresses drifting Israel through his prophet. And he writes, And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she went and was a harlot also. Jeremiah is saying, You should have learned from the northern kingdom Israel. I, I, I put her away. I let the Assyrians capture her. Why? Because she was spiritually an adulterer. But even the southern kingdom, Judah, didn't listen. Hosea the prophet writes, My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviners wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. The psalmist said this in Psalm 108, Thus they became unclean in their practices, and they played the harlot. God is using physical, sexual terms to, to describe spiritual harlotry. And so in the New Testament, James says of the church, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Listen, when this world steals away the affection that you should give to Jesus Christ, you are committing spiritual adultery, and God hates it. Now, right now, there are thousands of religions across this planet, but most of them fall under the realm of Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism. Most of the world, uh, they, they observe one of six religions. But there is coming a day when the world is going to be under one single banner, 
And it's going to be because of this place called Mystery Babylon. There's going to be a one world religion. Now I want to tell you, we'll begin to examine it next time. But there are things that are taking place right now in the world that are sowing the seeds for this one world religion. Some things that have even happened this month that we're going to look at that is feeding the plan for a one world religion. Now Christianity in its truest sense is not a religion. It's called the faith. There's only one religion, and it's God's religion, and that religion is found in the Bible. Now, there's a lot that goes under the banner of Christianity that has nothing to do with the faith. But God's faith, delivered by the apostles, we find it here in the Bible, is the true religion. Look at verse 1 again. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now notice, this harlot, who is defined in the verses that follow as Babylon, is described as sitting on many waters. That expresses the scope of this religious entity. Now, if you remember, we've already seen it in the Revelation, the term sea, and the word water in the Revelation can refer to a literal sea or a literal body of water, or it can refer to a large entity of people. Even in English today, we speak of the sea of humanity. We're speaking of this huge entity of people. You say, well, I wonder what it means here. You don't have to wonder. Put out in the margin next to verse 1, Revelation 17, 15. God defines what he means. He says, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The whole world is going to be captured by this religion. Now, let's finally think about the seduction of religious Babylon. Beyond the scope of religious Babylon, let's think about its seductive power, the seduction of religious Babylon. Now we read in verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. It's not by accident that God mentions here the kings of the earth. Kings, presidents, prime ministers, they're all going to be deluded. They're going to be drunk with the deception of this harlot, spiritual Babylon, and they're going to embrace her, and they're going to get the peoples of the nations to follow their example. She's like a slick seductress. You say, how could this happen so fast? How could she seduce so many people so quickly? Think about it. All the true Christians are suddenly gone. Millions across the planet. All the born-again Christians are missing. We're the salt of the earth. We preserve righteousness. We're the light of the world. We dispel darkness. Now we're all gone. And there's a field day for evil to come in. Add to that, this Antichrist comes on the scene. The scripture says he has lying wonders and miracles. And he has a false prophet who acts like the Holy Spirit. And he points people to the Antichrist. And he too does the supernatural. And together they are able to capture the people who are drunk with this wicked evil religion. Those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. It's pretty sobering. Now think about it. Suppose it happened today. It could happen today. You say it won't happen today. It could. It could happen today. It will happen at a time when you least expect it, Jesus said. 
What would happen if Christ came to catch up his bride today? Well, Mormonism would go on like it always has. Liberal Protestantism would just keep going. You know, the, the people who are always challenging them and says, well, we can't, we, we can't do that. that. That's against the Bible. You know, the United Methodists this week, they're going to vote over whether or not they're going to officially, they're already doing it in practice, but they're going to vote officially whether or not they're going to sanction gay pastors and perform gay marriages in their churches. You know, and the, and the born-agains in that denomination say, no, that's not right. We can't do that. God's word is clear. Don't do that. They'll keep going on. All the liberal Protestants will go on. Judaism and its unbelief will go on until the 144,000 are raised up and they sway the minds of all Israel. Well, they'll believe Jesus is Lord. Confucianism, Buddhism, Roman Catholicism will go on with the exception of those born-again Roman Catholics, but most are not. Why? Because at the Council of Trent reaffirmed Vatican I, Vatican II, they denied salvation by grace alone through faith alone. You cannot deny that you're saved by grace through faith and be counted as a true Christian. They'll continue with their masses. And all of these religions are going to come together. Now, the Antichrist is going to allow this bridge to be built because he's going to bring, be able to bring together both religiously and politically the nations of the world. But then, as we will see in these two chapters... The Antichrist will not be satisfied with everyone and all these different religions worshiping together. He is going to narrow the focus and he says, you worship me or you worship no one. Now, how can we apply this today? Let me suggest three applications as we close our time. Number one. I learn and I'm reminded from this chapter that the growing religious uni unification in our day should drive us to Scripture. The religious unification in our day should drive us to the Bible. The Bible is your protection. And if you are the head of your home, if you are the dad in the family, then you are to be in the Word of God. You are to know what the Scriptures say. Negatively, you are to protect your children from the evil that is everywhere because there are so many Christians in our day who are compromised in their viewing habits and their listening habits and the kinds of things they let into their heart. And so a father and a mother is to protect those children from those evils in spite of what all their friends may be doing. But beyond that, they are to bring them up in the discipline and nurture of the Lord by teaching them the Scripture. And you cannot do that as a dad unless this word is first in your heart. And if this word is first in your heart, then you can teach your children as you walk in the way, as you rise up. But you must drive yourself to Scripture. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, God said, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. Question, when did the Holy Spirit make this prophecy? Well, possibly he's referencing to what he spoke because Christ was anointed by the Spirit in everything he did. He lived in dependence upon the Holy Spirit in everything that he said. Maybe this is a reference to what he said on the Olivet Discourse. Where in Matthew 24, Jesus said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise in this, and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. 
Or maybe he is uh, referencing what he spoke through the Apostle Paul that was so inspired it made its way into the printed page of Scripture when Paul gathers the Ephesian elders and he says, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Or maybe he's just writing it fresh right here. That in the latter times, some will fall away from, notice, not from faith, but the faith. It's articular. The faith in the Bible is that term that's used to describe this body of truth we call the Bible. In the latter times, now remember, there are two critical terms. Last days, latter days. Last days and latter times. Now, most of the time, the last days can refer, especially in the New Testament, to any time since the day of Pentecost. We began the last days because prophetically Jesus could come at any moment. Nothing is ever needed to be done for Jesus to come back from heaven for his church. Sometimes in the Old Testament, last days refers to the very end of time. But in both Old and New Testaments, in every instance, latter times, latter days, refer to those final days just before Jesus comes back from heaven. The second coming. And he warns that in the latter days, men will depart from the faith, this body of truth. And what is it going to bring about? What's called the apostasy. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, and at that time many will fall away. That's the verbal form of the noun apostasia. We get our word apostasy from it. It means to fall away. Many at that time will fall away and deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Likewise, the Apostle Paul describes that time frame called the day of the Lord that begins after the church is raptured. And he said this, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the day of the Lord that he just mentioned in verse 2, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, is revealed. Those are titles given for the Antichrist. Some of the church in the city of Thessalonica thought maybe they had missed the rapture and they were in the day of the Lord. Paul says, you can't possibly be in the day of the Lord. If you were in the day of the Lord, you'd see the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, and you would witness visibly not just apostasy, but the apostasy. We have apostasy in our day. We've had apostasy for 2,000 years, but I want to tell you, I am a lover of church history, and there is apostasy that is taking place today like it has never had since the inception of the church, and the seeds are being sold, sown now for a one-world apostasy, and men in a wholesale way are going to depart from the Christian faith. They're going to laugh. They're going to mock this book. We call the Holy Bible as they are already doing. Now, there's a second lesson I learned. You need to be in the Word of God to protect your own heart, to know who's on first. But secondly, be aware of the promotion of unity at the expense of sound doctrine. Be aware of the promotion of unity at the expense of sound doctrine. Tragically, the evangelical community in our day continues to move away from sound doctrine. Why do you suppose so many people embrace, embrace the Kenneth Copelands and the Joel Olsteins, who both preach another Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible, another Jesus? 
because they are so ignorant on sound. It's a word healthy. It's a medical term. They're so ignorant of healthy doctrine. The scripture is to be paramount in the worship service. God's word, not entertainment. God's word is to be taught. And if you do not have an ear and a heart for the word of God, there is something radically wrong with your spiritual life. If you can watch a football game for three hours and you can't be in a worship service where the preacher preaches for an hour, there's something wrong with your heart. You either don't have an appetite for the Word of God because you've never been born again or you've broken fellowship with the living God. And so a pastor, an elder, Paul says in Titus 1, is to be one who is holding fast the faithful Word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, unity and brotherhood may sound wonderful. Oh, let's bring everybody together. Not so. You only unify around truth. You do not unify among those who are less than faithful to the Word of God. Otherwise, you are endorsing their error. And so Jude says that we are to contend earnestly for the faith delivered unto the saints once and for all. No spiritual unity between those who reject the gospel and those who embrace it. Finally, if we know Christ, we do not have to fear the coming apostasy, but we can rest assured in God's protection. Do you know Christ not just as a historical person? A lot of people know Christ the way I know the president. I know the president of the United States. You do? Yes. I know his name. I've read books about him, one book about him. I don't know him personally. And a lot of people, some within the sound of my voice, they know Jesus the way I know the president. They just know facts about Jesus. It may be accurate facts, but they've never been born from above where they've come into a personal relationship with the Lord. Well, listen, if you know Christ as your Savior, you don't have to fear the turmoil that is coming, this apostasy. You can rest assured in God's protection. Many years ago, after my wife and I brought home from the hospital our second-born son, Jordan, we turned on the nightly news, and it was just like one tragedy after another. It was kind of depressing. And here, we, we brought this precious little young man into the world. And now I see parents bringing these precious little children into the world. And you ought to bring them in. Because God tells you to. But God is bigger than our circumstances. It was just kind of depressing. And her grandmother, Maud Hill, had come to be with us. And, and she said to us, remember, Jesus said these things must take place. What was her message to us? God is sovereign. He is on his throne. These things must take place. God is over your life. If you know him as Lord, Jesus can say that you are more important than a single sparrow. So more important that he says that a single sparrow is not forgotten before God. Indeed, he says the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do you remember in Psalm 2 where we have a picture of a sovereign God at the end of times? You ought to meditate on that psalm. And there are four voices in the psalm. First is the voice of the nations. You hear the unbelieving nations of the world speak. 
And there we're told, why are the nations in an uproar? And the people devise vain things. The kings of the earth, they take their stand, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one. What do they say? Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what they're saying now. Oh, you want to have a baby? You want to put a knife through your baby on his birthday? It's legitimate. As long as you and your doctor agree. If you want to kill your baby the day before your baby's gone, it's okay. You want to have a gay, wicked, perverted lifestyle? It's okay, and if you're against it, there's something wrong with you. That's what they're saying. Let us tear their fetters apart. Let's not live within the restraints of this Judeo-Christian ethic. Listen now to the voice of God the Father. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now listen to the voice of God the Son. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. Now listen to the voice of God the Spirit. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. God is reminding his people here that the kings of the earth, and by extension, the peoples of the earth, they may be in rebellion against him, but their wisest decision would be to honor him, to revere him, to worship the one true God. And if you are a Christian, you've met the living God, you don't have to worry about the coming apostasy because God has sealed you with the Spirit for the day of redemption and he has secured you for heaven. And the Bible teaches you will never renounce Christ and you will never, ever, ever fall away from him. But I want to tell you, my friend, if you don't know Christ, and the rapture will to happen today, it will be forever too late for you. You will be left behind, and you will go through this great tribulation as long as you survive it, and you will leave this world into an eternal judgment of fire and wrath that will never, ever, ever, ever end. Now, that's not God's heart for anyone. And if you go there and end up there for an eternity and remember this sermon there, you will have no one to blame but yourself because you spurn the living God and you rejected his son. Now, Holy Father, we thank you today for your word. It is truth. You said, Lord Jesus, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And I pray today, Father, for someone here in our midst, someone maybe in Grays, someone in Bluffton, someone in Graniteville, someone live streaming, someone in this room who's uncertain of their eternal destiny. Thank you that if one would be willing to repent of their sin, change their mind, call their sin what you call it evil, and let go of it and to embrace Jesus that you would save them today. Thank you that whosoever will may come. Thank you that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Help some dear soul to say in simple childlike faith,
Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, we know a generation is being prepared to give their allegiance to the Antichrist. And while we cannot control everyone, there is one person we know for sure that we can direct, and that is ourselves. And I pray especially for the dads and the moms who will meet so much resistance in this day, even sometimes from their own children. Give them the courage to help their children understand why they believe what they believe. We know that starts, Father, with their knowledge of Scripture. They're spending time in this book on a regular, consistent basis. So help the dads and moms, even the grandparents, to do that, that we might lead our children in a way that is pleasing and honoring to your son, Jesus, whom we love and in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? The Bible says now is the acceptable time. And for some of you, this would be an acceptable time for you to come and to confess Jesus as your Lord because you've never done that. Some of you have never been baptized as an emblem of your faith. I want to invite you to leave today. Your seat and come to this front row. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian, but you don't have a church home. We need you. You say, I come here week after week. I don't want to join a church. Well, then you're saying, I don't want to obey the living God. Look, if not this church, join another church. But don't drag your feet. Do what God tells you to do. So this is your invitation. And if there's a decision you need to make, I want to invite you to leave and come to this front row. Would you come right now? Matt, would you lead us? Step out. Meet me here.